Can you please stand for the reading of uh, God's Word? This morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be reading verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to be uh, reading verse 22. Verses 1 and 2 and then verse 22. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Lord, I pray that you speak to us this morning through your word. We understand that this is your word. It's not created by men, not invented by men. It's your word. Please use it to give glory to your name, joy to your people, and bring closer to you those that are far from you. And we pray for this in the name of Jesus. And everyone says, you may be seated. You know that every day you learn something new? That's part of life. We always learn something new. And today, after hearing Sergio talking about uh, this being a, a service, worship service uh, with accent, uh, I learned that I have an accent. <laughs> didn't know that. Um, just kidding. Um, for the last few weeks, we have been going through this series called By Faith, in which we are looking into uh, all these different people from the Old Testament found in Hebrews chapter 11 that actually teaches what it means to live by faith. And today, we are looking into the life of Joseph. Um, and if there's one thing that we can learn from his life, is that for him, living by faith meant living a life in which you must trust God's plans. To live by faith, according to Joseph, is to live a life in which you must learn to trust God's plans. And so, the three things that I learned from him is this. That God has a plan, and that plan will not fail. Number two, that God has a plan... And that plan has a purpose. Number three, that, ha- that God had a plan, and He accomplished it. His plans will never fail. His plans always have a purpose. And whatever He wanted to do, He already did. So with that, let's go with point number one. God has a plan, and He will not fail. Um, I did this last week, um, so let me do it again. How many of you guys are familiar with Joseph's story? You see, that makes this sermon so complicated. Um, Because the problem is that when you hear a story that you already heard, the tendency is to ignore what the preacher is saying. And I don't find that fair. Um, So what I want you to do is to pretend like if you don't know this story. Uh, So I could show you some things that maybe, just maybe, you missed as you were going through it. For example... That what is the main purpose of Joseph's story? Like I already told you, it has to do with God's purposes, but that's not usually at least what, what I have heard, right? So if you grew up in Christianity um, and you went to Sunday school or you've been in Sunday school, usually the story of Joseph is a story that is used to give all these moral lessons that we're supposed to put into practice. Now, nothing wrong with that. The problem is that none of those moral lessons, I'll show you in a second, is the main point of the story. So, for example, I have heard people saying, well, Joseph was a dreamer. And 
he kind of bragged about it. So, don't be like Joseph. Don't brag about your gifts. That's what I have heard, right? Um, but that's not the point of the story. It's a good lesson, but it's not the point of the story. I have heard people say, well, you see how Joseph got this colorful coat from his father, and then his brothers were jealous of him? Well, the lesson is, don't be like Joseph's brothers. You shouldn't be jealous. Well, I don't think that's the main point of the story. Uh, someone has said, well, you see how Joseph ran away from temptation? That's imitate Joseph. Run away from temptation. Oh, well, that's good. It's biblical. But that's not the main point of the story. They would say, well, you see how Joseph uh, forgave his brothers? Well, the lesson is that you learn how to forgive your brothers. Well, that's good. It's a biblical thing. But that's not the main point of the story. If that is the main point of the story, any of those points, there's, there's no reason why Joseph was included in this list of people of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. This is my argument. If you remember, I told you before that the book of Hebrews was written to a group of Christians that are suffering because of their faith. And due to these extreme uh, levels of suffering, they are starting to question their faith. They're actually starting to question if following Jesus was worth it. Right? Um, so this is my reasoning. If what the author of Hebrews wants for these people is to look at Joseph and imitate his faith, that's no help. But that can help when you're struggling, especially if you're questioning your Christianity. If anything, if someone tells you, when you're struggling with your Christianity, if someone tells you, you see that person, be like that person. That doesn't help. It actually is the opposite. I actually think that it's counterproductive for two reasons. Number one, because it, it either makes you feel guilty. How come he lives that way I, and I cannot live that way? And guilt doesn't help anybody. And number two, it, could, it has the potential to, feel you, to make you feel condemned. I'm never going to be able to live like that person. That cannot be the reason why Joseph's story is included in Genesis chapter, in Hebrews chapter 11. I think that the main point of Joseph's story and the main reason why Joseph is included in Hebrews 11 is for us to understand and believe even when you're suffering, even when you question your Christianity, is for you to believe and understand that God has a plan, and that those plans are always fulfilled. Let me say that again. The main purpose, in my opinion, why Joseph is included in Hebrews 11, is for this group of suffering, questioning Christians, believe with all their hearts that regardless of what they go through and what they are experiencing, God has a plan, and those plans will be fulfilled. And those plans never, 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 ever, ever, ever fail. And I actually got two examples from this story to show you why I'm saying this. The first one is to do with Joseph's dreams. Now, I know you remember those dreams, but I'm going to show uh, the text on the screen. This comes from Genesis chapter 37. This is actually how we know. This is how in, Joseph is introduced to us. And he says that he had this dream, and in this dream, he was... Uh, the center sheet, uh, chef, the center bundle, 
that rose and stood upright, while the rest of the family, the rest of the sheep, um, gathered around him and bowed down to him. Do you remember that? And then he has a second dream. And in that second dream, he is the sun and he is the moon, and the family is 11 stars that are bowing down to him. Now, if you know anything about that story, you know that that story got complicated really quick. Right? Because what family hears the little one saying, you're going to worship me with that accent? You're going to worship me. My older brother's going to worship me. With my, your parents, my parents are going to worship me. How would you take that? Now, we know from the story that Joseph's attitude actually was not the best attitude. This was a troubled kid. He's got, he had issues. And I could prove you why I think he had issues. Number one is because uh, even though we cannot read the tone in the story, we know already that his brothers hated him prior to this dream. And we know that his brothers hated him because he was daddy's little boy. That was the reason why God, uh, God Jacob gave him a colorful coat. And nobody else got that coat. And it seems to me like if Joseph not only bragged about these dreams, and I was already daddy's little boy, meaning that probably his father had preferences, right? But we also know that this kid liked and enjoyed getting his brothers in trouble. You know how I know that? Because there's a time, if you remember, that Jacob sent him to, to check up on his brothers. And when he comes back, it says that he came with a bad report. Now, you could say bad report doesn't mean anything. No, not in the original. In the original, the, the word, bad, the phrase bad report literally means slander. You know what that means? It's when you either lie about something or you magnify or exaggerate something to get somebody else in trouble. That was Joseph. Now, if you remember when your kids were little, and even if they're adults, when you want your siblings to get in trouble, all you have to do is either lie or exaggerate. That's how I know. So my little one, I say, go check up on my older daughter, and uh, because I asked her to clean the room, and she comes back and says, she hasn't done anything. Well, the, the room was already half done. But this exaggeration of this lie is, is meant to get my older daughter in trouble. And, and the older daughter does the same thing. That's Joseph. And this is a dysfunctional family. And we know that because that dynamic of the family is the reason why the brothers decide to sell Joseph into slavery. At age 17. And from there, Joseph goes through really painful and difficult things. And 20-something years later, seems to believe like if Joseph spent in Egypt at least 23 to 25 years, and 20-something years later, when he's in his 40s, he finally gets to see his brothers again. You remember that, right? And what is the first thing that happened? The family worshipped. 20 years for God to fulfill a dream. 20 years for God to fulfill a vision. And he got fulfilled. Because when God has a plan, that plan never fails. Even if it takes 20 years. 
When God has a plan, that plan never fails. Even if he's been broken people. And a daddy's little boy. His plans are always fulfilled. And the second reason why I know that that's the main point of the story is because we know that God sent Joseph to Egypt not just to make of him a person of honor and respect and all of that stuff, a person with a higher position, but because he will use him to save his people, to protect and provide for his people. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 50. This is verse 20. This is Joseph speaking to his brother. And he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And this is Joseph saying something like, it doesn't matter what you did to me. It doesn't matter if I was sent into slavery. It doesn't matter if I got hurt and you got hurt. It doesn't matter what everyone went through. It doesn't matter if my father was in pain. It doesn't matter any of that. At the end of the day, God sent me here for a bigger purpose, greater purpose than just myself. That's amazing. Because when God has a plan, He fulfills those plans. Now, I know that there's going to be at least one person in this room that is saying, well, that's amazing. That is so beautiful. That's inspiring. That when God has a plan, He fulfills His plans. But what do you do in the middle? Because you still got to go through betrayal and pain and fear and loneliness and dissolution. This is what I think the people in the book of Hebrews would ask as they hear this thing. What about in the middle? How do I cope with everything that is painful in my life? And here Joseph is going to teach us something amazing. Because he's going to explain to us, the book of Genesis is going to explain to us, what is it that sustained Joseph, even through those difficult times in his life. And it's actually two things. The same two things that you and I need today. Number one, he truly, truly, truly believed in the unchangeable presence of God. And we see this from Genesis chapter 39. It says that the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Now, the reason why I chose this verse is because the phrase, Lord was with Joseph, changes everything. See, the word Lord there is a covenant name, meaning that when Joseph is going through these painful things in life, God had already made a commitment with him that he was not going to let him go regardless of what Joseph would do or not do. That's what a covenant is. When one person commits to the other person regardless of what happens. That's a picture of marriage, remember? That's why marriage is a covenant. And as Joseph is going through all these painful things in life, and he's, as he's going through failures and celebrations, struggles and temptations, the ups and downs of life, this guy knows that God is not going to let him go. For 20 years, there's more. Because not only God is a God of covenants, and he was a covenant God with Joseph, but God himself told him, I'm going to be with you. And what makes that phrase amazing is that this is chapter 39. 
and the phrase, the Lord was with Joseph, appears nine times in one chapter. Like, if you want to get the whole story, basically the whole story from Joseph's uh, victories and failures, all you have to do is read Genesis chapter 39. Because in Genesis chapter 39, you see how God made of him an overseer. And he also sees there in this victory that uh, uh, that Potiphar's wife, uh, you know, wanted to be with him. And this is the same chapter when we see that Joseph was tempted, tempted and he had to run away. And it's the same chapter where we see that Jesus, uh, because this lady died, uh, lied, Joseph was put into prison. And it's the same chapter where we see Joseph being exalted once again in prison. And you would say, man, that's a lot of information for one chapter. But the whole idea for us here today is that what, what the book of Genesis wants us to know, that the only way you confront, once again, the failures and the celebrations of life, the struggles and the temptations of life, the ups and downs of life, is to know what Joseph knew. That God was with him. He knew that he knew God's unchangeable presence all the time. That's what kept them going. But there's more. Not only that God was with him at all times, and that he would never let him go, but that God is sovereign. And that he's in control, truly, truly in control of everything. And we see this in Genesis chapter uh, 45. This, this is 20 years after he's having a conversation with his brothers. And look at what he says. It wasn't you who sent me here. It was God that sent me here ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant and earth and to save your life by a great deliverance. And then in verse 8, he says something similar. It was not you who sent me here, but God. Notice here. He, God, made me father of Pharaoh. And verse 9. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Notice the centrality of the, of the sovereignty of God in the life of Joseph. It wasn't his skills. It wasn't his wisdom. It wasn't because he was good. It was because God is a God of sovereignty. And he is in control of everything. And if he, God is in control of everything, then he moves everything providentially. Meaning that he moves the things that he needs to move and he uses whatever he needs to use to accomplish his plans. That was Joseph. That's how he survived. That's what the people in the book of Hebrews needed to hear. That when God has a plan, he will not fail. Because he's always present and he's got everything under control. Now, from that point, I want to give you three principles for you to take home. Number one, if God has a plan and that plan does not fail, you could actually be completely certain that God makes no mistakes. Like, there are no mistakes in God's economy. God is never late and never early. Nothing goes wrong. You, you need to remember that, especially when you think that you messed up. And if you did, yes. But there were no mistakes. God has a plan and he will accomplish whatever he needs to accomplish. You don't need to understand everything. All you need to know is that God makes no mistakes. Number two, 
If God has a plan, and those plans never fail, you cannot mess it up. Listen, every time I preach here, this is a principle. I could be awful, but I cannot mess it up. Because God is in control of everything that happens during this service, during my preaching time. Therefore, you get to relax, I get to relax. Number three, if God has a plan and He does not fail, you don't need to know the plan. Don't overstress about what is the will of God. Don't overstress about the what if this happens. You know, the only thing that God expects of you is for you to be faithful one step at a time. That's all He wants. You don't need to have the whole idea. You just need to be faithful one step at a time. And I, I want to read this from uh, Richard Phillips, which is a pastor and a theologian from Westminster uh, Theological Seminary. This is what he says, and I love the way he brings it. God begins to unfold his plans for us. He takes us to point A, and we are surprised. Then he takes us to point B, and we are pleased. Then he takes us to point C, and we are delighted because we can see what's happening. But then, we rush into points J, K, and L. Then everything falls apart, and we have to be, to be gently and firmly taken back to point D. You cannot second-guess God. You can only go a step at a time. For you, that is the step that matters. What matters most is that God's will is done at a particular stage. He alone knows the whole story because it's his story. You know, that's what we saw in T.S.'s story. You, you don't have to know if you're going to lose your job or not. Whatever step you need to take, that's the step that matters because that's, where faith, that's what faith does. I'm faithful one step at a time. God has a plan, and that plan will not fail. He makes no mistakes because He's always present and always in control. You get to rest, trust, and be faithful one step at a time. That's what it means to live by faith. Point number two. God has a plan, and that plan has a purpose. Now, what is it? the reason why I included this point here is because there's this tendency, especially among religious people, to think that you're supposed to know what is the purpose of everything that God is doing. And sometimes the Lord lets you know, but 99.9 times, percent of the time, you don't know. But in everything that God does, there's always a purpose, a big purpose. What is interesting about Joseph's story is that there are at least four purposes in one plan. And none of those guys know what the purpose is. So, for example, we know that God had a purpose with Egypt. That's the reason why he sent Joseph over there. Egypt is a polytheistic culture. They worship many gods. And when they but and because of Joseph's testimony, Pharaoh, a polytheistic king, if you will, has to recognize that the Spirit of God is in Joseph. Second purpose in this story has to do with Israel, Jacob, and his family. And we already said this, part of the reason why Joseph was sent over there was to provide a protective family, and actually a whole generation of people. 
But there's a special purpose here, because we're talking about Joseph with Joseph. Because if you remember, I told you right at the beginning, Joseph had a bunch of issues. And what God is going to do through this 20-year journey is to deal with Joseph's heart. So we already mentioned that he was arrogant and unwise and probably unkind. And what God does through these failures and celebrations, his struggles and temptations, joy joy and pain, is he's shaping Joseph to the man he was supposed to be. And this is important for you to know because there's part of our American culture is to believe that everything works like a microwave. Click one minute. That's not how you grow. And that's not how God deals with people's hearts. From age 17 to age 20-something, God was dealing with Joseph to make of him the man that he was supposed to be. And we know those for, and I know this for sure, because of the two names he gives his two kids and what those names mean. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 41, it says that he named his firstborn Manasseh. And if you see right there, the definition of the word Manasseh means God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. And it took 20 years for Joseph to realize that he needed to forgive his brothers. But this is what I want you to see. That the only way you get to forgive somebody, like truly forgive somebody, is when you realize that you were just as broken as they were. That is the only way you get to forgive anybody. Like truly forgive. Is when you realize that even though they did something wrong, you are also just as simple as they are. And the second hint that I get is because of the second hint, Ephraim, which means God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. And I think that one of the things that God was dealing with Joseph was his prideful heart. And this is why. This is my reasoning. The only way you get to slander other people is because deep down inside, you think that you are superior to them. The only way you become a person that has no issues slandering other people is because deep down inside, you think that you're superior to them. And in a way, you have no issues dehumanizing another person in order for you to look good. And God, for 20 years, was working in Joseph's heart to make him the man that he was supposed to be. And the first purpose, fourth purpose, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one, is Joseph's brothers. Like the Bible makes it clear, man, that for 20 years these people are struggling with guilt. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 44, which is almost the end of the story, after they had this back and forth encounter with Joseph, Jacob, we have Judah, which happened to be the brother that had the idea to sell him into slavery, this is what he says. How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. For 20-something years, who knows what these guys were doing trying to deal with their guilt? Maybe, maybe, just maybe, they did the same things that we do today. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, the way they dealt with their guilt is by distractions or blaming others or working extra time or buying a lot of things, somehow trying to find peace. But God knew that the only way these people will find peace from guilt is by confessing their guilt. 
20 years. So from this point, I have another three principles. Principle number four. If God has a plan, and those plans have a purpose, not only you don't need to understand, but you could always believe that God is doing something. He's doing something with you, or He's doing something for you, or He's doing something for somebody else that doesn't have anything to do with you. And that's a beautiful thing. Because in God's economy, nothing, nothing is wasted. Nothing. Principle number five. If God has a plan, and those plans have a purpose, then don't waste your suffering. God is using your suffering to refine you. You know how many people are here talking about the will of God? What was the will of God? You know that one of the, the clearest texts in the Bible that talks about the will of God is when he says that his will is for us to be sanctified. It's to be more like Jesus. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. That is the will of God. And principle number six, that if God has a plan and those plans have a purpose, you should expect the unexpected. I mean, plan whatever you want, but you got to know that probably your, your plans have nothing to do with God's plans. And because He's God, He will change them. And it will be a good thing. So let's uh, hear again from Dr. Phillips. We all have plans, he says. I have a plan for my life, and God has a plan for my life. And I need to realize that His plan is different from my plan. My plan is one that goes forward in a straight line, each work building on another, small successes leading to large ones. My plan calls for achievement and blessing and worldly comfort. But though I have a plan, I can be sure that God is different. I love this part. He takes my plan, edits it with sorrows and failures and weaknesses, and gives it back to me one trial at a time. We cannot take God's plan for granted, but Him we trust implicitly. We cannot know what tomorrow brings, but we know the God who brings it. This is what Jesus warns us not to take our plans too seriously in Matthew chapter 6. I love that. I love that because it tells me that I don't have to know everything. You don't have to know everything. All you have to do is know the God of those plans. It tells me what, that what I need to know is to know that God has plans, good plans. It helps me to know Him, that He's always present, that He's truly sovereign, that He truly works providentially, that in everything He brings or everything He allows, there's always a perfect and beautiful purpose. It helps me to think that He makes no mistakes and that He does everything perfect, that He's never early and never late, and everything goes according to His beautiful plans. See, that's what these people needed to hear. And that's what you and me need to hear today. Joseph lived for, for 110 years. And right before he dies, 
That's when he says what we what we read in Hebrews chapter 11. He spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Notice here, Joseph doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. He knows that the Lord is going to do something. He doesn't know when that's going to happen. All he knows is that God is going to do something. And in that, he rested. At age 110 years old. See, we're not called to believe. You're not called to imitate Joseph. Don't be like him. Believe what he believed. Now, the question for us today is this. Can we actually live that out? Can we actually have a life in which we believe like that? And I would say, of course we can. Not without sin and not without struggle, but we can. You know why? Because God also had a plan and accomplished that plan. That'll be point number three. This is the beauty of the story and the beauty of the Old Testament. That if you look, the reason why we have Joseph, and the reason why God sent Joseph into Egypt, and the reason why God saved through Joseph his family, is because from his family we will get Jesus Christ. Behind that story, there's a greater story. Behind that purpose, there was a greater purpose. And the purpose that was that from that family, our Savior, Jesus Christ, would come. And this is the beauty of it. That when you pay attention to Jesus, he's almost like a refined, a much better version of Joseph. Let me tell you why. Because Jesus was also sent by God into a foreign land. And Jesus also had a plan. And that plan required him to become like one of us and to live in a foreign land. And that plan required for him to be rejected by his brothers and his sisters, just like Joseph was rejected by his brothers. And in that plan, it required him to be not to be stripped from a colorful coat, but for him to be stripped from all glory and honor and splendor. And in that plan, it required it would require him not for him to be sold into slavery, but for him to become a servant of all. And that that plan required him for him not to be elevated into a position of power and honor, but for him to be elevated on a cross to take the punishment his brothers and sisters deserve. And that plan required him not for him to see his father once again after much affliction, but in God's plan he would look for his father in the midst of trouble and he would not find him. Why have you forsaken him? Can you see why Jesus is a better Joseph? And there's more because Jesus also had a dream. And he also had a vision. And you know what that vision is? Every single one of us sitting here today. The reason why Joseph went through what he went through. And the reason why through Joseph Jesus comes. Is because Jesus had a vision and that vision was you. For God to save you, not from famine and not from hunger, but for God to save you from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and eventually from the presence of sin. And it gets even better because we have something that Joseph didn't have. 
got deleted with us. It is because of Jesus that we have the Holy Spirit living in us. And it is because of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, literally. So this is my reasoning. If Joseph was able to live a life by faith with the little things he had, can you imagine what we could live with everything we have in Jesus Christ? So let me close with this. This comes from Tim Keller. The great basis of the Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God. It's not. But how unshakable His heart is set on us. Isn't that beautiful? You could quote it and put my name on it. I would look really good. Let's pray. Can you please stand? Let's pray together. Beautiful, we, uh, beautiful, God. beautiful God. We are so, uh, so grateful for the fact that we have Joseph's story to remind us, Lord, that you truly are a God that is in control. That you have plans, and those plans will be accomplished regardless of what we do or don't do. And we thank you, Lord, because we can rest in that. And the reason why we can rest in that is because we have Jesus Christ to prove it. I pray, Lord, that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, mind to understand, and a heart to feel that you are in control, that you accomplish your purposes, and that we, and that we get to be part of that. And that everything you bring and everything you allow at the end of the day is not just for your glory, but it's for our joy. Please help us believe that. We believe it, help our unbelief. Lord, and with that, we receive the blessing that Jesus Christ guarantees for us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And the church says, have a blessed day. Thanks for coming. If you need prayer, please come to the front.